Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. If you Google East Bay Park District killing cats, one of the articles you'll find shows a picture of a beautiful cat named Sherbet, who's just sitting on top of a car, chilling, minding his own business, not harming anyone. Well, this little cute guy, Sherbet, was one of the many cats shot to death by the East Bay Regional Parks District in Oakland, California. Why is the East Bay Regional Park District indiscriminately killing cats? Well, they claim the cats are a threat to endangered wildlife in the area. This killing spree occurred last year, and we reported on it. It's a series of nighttime hunts in October and November of 2020 without notification to any people in the community. And they were criticized not only by cat lovers, but by many, especially including a woman who had been regularly feeding many individuals in this colony of cats. Essentially, they were her cats. I mean, this woman, Cecilia Thies, she was a volunteer. She trapped, neutered, and released many of the cats in the colony. And without warning and without telling her or anyone, these cats were shot to death. A video shows this woman, Thies, crying. She's devastated. In tears, she states, it's not okay to shoot these beings. Some of them were pets that were abandoned and she'd been caring for them. So recently, the district's board of directors unanimously approved a new policy in which they will take all necessary steps to try to remove the cats in a non-lethal way. They'll try, but they will contract out the killing if it becomes necessary. But the park staff will no longer shoot the cats themselves. They'll contract it out. But many cat lovers and non-cat people believe these cats shouldn't be killed under any circumstances. In fact, 70,000 people signed a petition to stop the park from shooting cats. Anita Carswell of In Defense of Animals said, and now East Bay Regional Parks doesn't plan on gunning down animals itself. It's just handing the job to a wildlife execution service to do it for them. Christina Kelchner, the district's executive manager, states, many of the species that we protect are endemic to the Bay Area, meaning they occur here and nowhere else. She goes on, that diversity is under severe and constant threat from human encroachment. We have an opportunity to protect species that are unique and native to these East Bay lands. Wait a minute. Is she saying humans are causing the problem of the biodiversity being under constant threat? So killing the cats is the solution? That's illogical. If you're going to make the argument that cats should be killed because they in turn are killing endemic or protected species and harming a particular habitat or ecosystem, then okay. Let's see the numbers. Let's see the science to back this up. Biodiversity studies are done all the time. That's what scientists in several fields and conservation biologists could do. They study the ecosystems and ecosystem balance and the factors that influence both plant and animal movement. But she's not saying that. She's saying biodiversity is under severe and constant threat from humans. So therefore kill the cats. Really, she doesn't know what she's talking about. What she's trying to say and what officials are saying is the cats prey on endangered species like the California Ridgeways rail, western snowy plover, and the salt marsh harvest mouse. 
I'm assuming these are endangered birds and mice. I think they are. And that's likely to be true, that they're preying on these endangered species. So the park staff are willing to work with animal shelters and cat volunteers to trap the cats. There's like over 6,000 volunteers. There are many individuals who want to help the effort to safely remove the cats. But what's bothering a lot of people is not only how they tried to handle this feral cat situation last year and the lack of transparency. I mean, this story was made public only because some little local news station got a tip and reported on it. But what's ticking people off is that their policy will still allow East Bay Parks to continue to hire outside contractors to shoot and kill cats in East Bay Parks. And indeed, according to the survey from one of the cat advocacy groups, 78% of people in this district who were polled said they were against the shooting of free-roaming cats. In addition to the concern about the cats being killed, over 80% in this poll expressed concern that people and other animals could be harmed or scared by the shooting of cats in East Bay Parks. Well, yeah. You know, near where I live a few years ago, people were shooting ducks and migratory birds and coots on the fairways, on the golf courses. This happened dozens of times in the past several years. The most recent time was this past March. A video emerged on Facebook of people hunting and shooting birds at a private golf club in Rancho Mirage, California. And then there was supposed to be another day of bird killing, which purportedly was cleared with the city and a federal wildlife agency, and the killing would be conducted by golf club members? That's just great. Why don't we just give permission to anyone when they see a bird near a golf course to kill them? But but then I heard the last minute, they, they meaning the city, canceled the killing because of public outrage and outrage by wildlife advocates. And I'll tell you, the way I first learned about the shooting of birds on golf courses several years back was when one of my friends who lives, her home is right there on the fairway, she called me. She and her daughter were having breakfast on their back patio one morning, and her 10-year-old daughter became hysterical when the greenkeeper drove by with 20 or more large dead birds piled up on his trailer he was pulling. Her terrified, crying daughter said, Mommy, why did they kill all those birds? A petition was then put together of thousands of signatures opposing the shooting of birds and coots. I mean, the residents were being woken up to gunshots at 5.30 in the morning in a fairly upscale community. Isn't that lovely? There are safe and humane, effective ways to keep the geese and the coots off the golf courses. There are deterrence, repellents. There's even scare tactics. Scaring the birds away is better than indiscriminately killing them, wouldn't you say? And what if a raptor or a bald eagle flies by? Should we just shoot anything we see flying above us? I mean, what the hell is wrong with people? It's just easier and cheaper to shoot wildlife, so let's just shoot them. Anyway, back to the cats. Becky Robinson, the founder of Alley Cat Allies, she's been on the show before, she states, there are many other ways to mitigate whatever threat or perception of threat cats have in the environment. It's well within your legal right to establish policies that do not kill cats. 
In a press release I received from Alley Cat Allies, Robinson states, it's time for East Bay Parks to fully move beyond the Wild West notion that killing is any part to play in conservation. The moral costs it carries are far too high and it does not work. By wide margins, East Bay residents oppose cats being shot and killed in their parks. If the board rejects lethal cat control, it will enjoy the support of the community and will finally be protecting endangered and threatened species in ways that are in line with the values of the community in which it exists. It also states in this press release, while killing may briefly reduce the number of cats, the population soon rebounds as other cats move in to fill the space freed by the temporary population reduction. This phenomenon is known as the vacuum effect and has been documented in studies of cats, coyotes, and other mammals. Now, not surprising, the Mount Diablo Audubon Society supports the decision to remove the cats in any way. I haven't met or known any Audubon Society or representative from an Audubon Society that supports humane alternatives to managing feral cats, like trap, neuter, release. That's called TNR. The cats are trapped and they're fixed so they can't reproduce. They are released back into the community and they are cared for and fed by kind people who come visit the colony. And it's the humane way of controlling feral cat populations. Anyway, Hugh Harvey of the Mount Diablo Audubon Society states, these cats should be removed humanely whenever possible, but nonetheless need to be removed. So we do have the bird people and the cat people, and they will never agree on this topic of how to handle community cats. Bird people want to kill them, and cat people want to humanely control the population. We had a heated debate on how to manage these feral cats or community cats on the show several years back. Someone from the Audubon Society and someone from a cat advocacy organization. And that was fun. Like I said, most bird people will say these TNR programs don't work, so just kill the cats. And on the other side is that TNR programs do indeed work, and it is the perfect humane solution to the problem. And I happen to agree. And I'm a bird and cat person. Okay, don't go away. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure-of-eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise, quick movements, including backwards and upside-down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long, specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than 2 grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than 5 grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. 
Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. According to the Centers for Disease Control, an estimated 70% of adults are obese or overweight, and the statistics are almost as bad for our pets. The Association for Pet Obesity Prevention reports that according to its 2018 data, a staggering 56% of dogs and 60% of cats in the United States are overweight or obese. Obesity remains one of the few diseases that pet owners can influence, but it takes a while many months, and it takes commitment and vigilance. The Morris Animal Foundation laid out some nice strategies to improve weight loss success in our pets. Switching a pet to a prescription diet that promotes weight loss remains one of the best and easiest ways to help a pet lose weight. Although many commercial foods are advertised as weight reduction or light diets, these products often are not as effective as prescription diets in promoting weight loss. And of course, you know, the prescription diets require veterinarian's recommendation. Other weight loss strategies include giving pets plenty of exercise and social stimulation, very important, using food puzzles for feeding. This promotes slow consumption of the food while providing stimulation. We use slow feeding systems when we feed our dogs their meals, right, Peter? Partially effective. Thoughtful timing of spay and neutering can also help with weight control. Using a consistent measuring device, measuring cup or measuring scale to determine portions, avoiding high calorie, especially high fat treats, even in small amounts. Enlisting the support of the entire veterinary care team, avoiding assigning blame and engaging everyone in the family to help. And being patient, weight loss is hard. It's important to talk to your veterinarian before starting any weight loss and exercise program for your pet. Your veterinarian can help guide and program and provide resources to ensure success. Thank you, Morris Animal Foundation, for that. And if you want to listen to my interview with veterinarian Doug Coons about pet obesity, simply go to animalstodayradio.com and type in the search box, Pet Obesity. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about the American bison. These large, majestic animals, along with the bald eagle, serve as an official symbol of the United States. In prehistoric times, millions of bison roamed the continent along with large cats and woolly mammoths. However, by the late 1800s, as the U.S. inhabitants moved west, the bison population was nearly wiped out. This is because the settlers slaughtered bison for sport and their hides, as well as to clear the plains for livestock. Native Americans used bison for everything from food and clothing to shelter and tools. 
According to the National Wildlife Federation, it's estimated that before the expansion west, between 30 million and 60 million bison roam the area, from Canada to northern Mexico and from the plains to the eastern forests. However, by 1890, less than 1,000 bison remained. Thanks to a few private individuals, in conjunction with tribes, states, and the Department of the Interior, bison were saved from extinction. Bison are North America's largest native land animals. A full-grown male, a bull, can weigh up to 2,000 pounds and reach a height of 6 feet tall. A fully grown female, a cow, can weigh as much as 1,000 pounds and stand 4 to 5 feet tall. Bison calves weigh anywhere between 30 and 70 pounds at birth. The average lifespan of the bison is approximately 20 years. Sometimes confused with each other, bison are completely different from buffalo, although there may be some resemblance. Buffalo originate in Africa and Asia, have large sets of horns, and lack the massive shoulder hump characteristic of bison. The bison is a fascinating animal that has a long history in the United States. In fact, this large mammal helped to create habitats on the Great Plains for a variety of species, including birds and many plant species. This is because as bison forage, they aerate the soil with their hooves. This aids in plant growth and disperses native seeds, all of which help to maintain a healthy and balanced ecosystem. Now, that large hump on a bison's back, it's a powerful muscular structure supported by a large vertebrae, which can be up to two feet long. These powerful muscles permit the animal to forcibly move its head side to side. So in deep snow, a path can be made. It's like a built-in snowplow. Here's another intriguing bison fact. It's possible to tell the mood of a bison by its tail. If its tail is hanging down and moving from side to side in a natural motion, this generally means the animal is calm. However, if the bison's tail is standing straight up, you don't want to be anywhere in its path, as this often indicates it's ready to charge. And despite their massive size, these animals can run at speeds of 40 miles per hour. They're also extremely agile and can jump up to six feet high, as well as spin around quickly. This has served them well in fighting off predators. Of course, their sheer size alone presents a strong deterrent. In the bison behavior known as wallowing, they roll around in the dirt to drive away flies and help shed fur. Male bison also wallow during mating season to leave behind their scent and display their strength. Speaking of mating, the females and males generally live in small, separate bands and come together in large herds in the summer, which is the mating season. Bison are grazers, and they eat grasses, herbs, shrubs, and twigs. They regurgitate their food and chew on it as cud before finally digesting it. Another interesting fact is that bison are nearsighted. To make up for it, they have excellent senses of smell and hearing. Yellowstone National Park is the only place in the United States where bison have continuously lived since prehistoric times. According to the National Park Service, as of July 2015, Yellowstone's bison population was estimated at 4,900, making it the largest bison population on public lands. The Yellowstone herd is one of the few that remains genetically free of cattle genes. In 1905, the American Bison Society was formed. By 1930, the society had enough bison to restore free-ranging bison herd. Working with the Department of the Interior, they donated 14 bison to Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota. 
More than 100 years later, the bison from Wind Cave helped to reestablish other herds across the United States. On May 9, 2016, President Obama signed the National Bison Legacy Act into law, officially making the American bison the national mammal of the United States. And that was today's Animals Today Minute. You're listening to Animals Today with Dr. Lori Kirshner, your home for serious talk about animals. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. back to the show. We have something novel for you now. At least it's new to me. In California, there's a new place and an organization that specializes in rescuing donkeys. I never heard of a donkey rescue group before, but I had a chance to chat briefly with Ron King, who is CEO and co-founder of Oscar's Place. And I really think you're going to enjoy learning about this. Hey, Ron. Hello. Welcome to the show. Ron, Tell us your story. Yes, let me um, let me think of the best cliff note version of how I ended up here. So, I've been a media executive for many years, about twenty years actually, splitting my time mostly between LA and New York. I was a senior vice president um, at a company called Time Inc., uh, one of the largest publishers in the world, and I had seven brands under my portfolio. So, my portfolio consisted of. In Style and People Style Watch, Essence and People in Espanol, Southern Living, Coastal Living and Sunset. And, you know, I had a great career. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I Because I ran a fashion magazine, I was at fashion shows twice a year um, in Milan. And uh, timing got bought by another company. And I left with the severance package. I was doing a little bit of freelance work while mostly trying to take some time off. And then COVID hit. And I found myself a little bit restless without any work. So I have a friend named Philip Selway, who I've been friends with for also 20 years. Um, And he is very successful. And he needed, I could tell he needed some admin help to sort of get some elements of his life 
together, like treating, you know, a successful life, like a business, he needed a business manager to organize some things. So I said, look, Bill, while I'm, uh, out of work, why don't I help you sort of organize your life? So I started working for Philip during the pandemic. He had purchased this property in Mendocino County to turn it into a farm animal sanctuary. He purchased it three years ago. Yeah. And he wants his legacy on this planet to be one of animal welfare. Nice. So he has a lot of different uh, legacy plans in play. This property was one of them. And uh, three years later, it never got off the ground. And the person that he was doing it with moved to Mexico. So Philip said, as part of your work as my business manager, will you please go out to Mendocino County and uh, live in this house until you sell the property, but sell the property because it's not going to work out for me. Um, and I need to unload the property. So there was a pandemic going on. I, nobody was going out to eat sushi. So I knew I wasn't going to miss much. And so I agreed to come uh, and I came to this beautiful home. And, you know, I, I came here with a three month commitment, fully planning to get back to my media career. Um, I had a lot of different uh, jobs in play. Uh, I knew that I was going to land a pretty big media job. It just was an obvious next step for me. So I ended up in Hopland. Those job opportunities fell through despite my best efforts. So I was walking around this property. There's no animals in sight. I was walking around and I felt this feeling that I hadn't felt in decades. And I stopped to think about it and I realized it was a feeling of serenity. And, you know, my head is like a snow globe that never stops being shook. And I felt in the moment that the shaking had stopped. Now in my thirties and in my forties, Serenity was not at the top of my priority list. In my 50s, having gone through a major career change, serenity has more value than it used to. Mm -hmm. So I just sort of tucked that away in my brain. A couple of days later, I was laying out by the pool, scrolling TikTok, and I saw a video of a woman crying. She was at a livestock auction. She was trying to save donkeys from slaughter. She had nowhere to take them. And I had never thought of donkeys ever in my life. Um, I was born on a farm in Arkansas 52 years ago. So, but, it, but she really struck me because she was in a desperate situation. And I thought, why are people slaughtering donkeys? So I Googled it and I read an article in the guardian that there's this particular, um, Chinese herb that requires donkey hide that has skyrocketed in popularity. And this article said that to meet the growing demand of this herb, 50% of the world's population of donkeys will be gone in the next four and a half years. Oh, that's incredible. Um, it's incredible. So they're being slaughtered literally by the millions around the globe. And I was just really sh struck by that. And, you know, I started thinking about the difference between things that I enjoy and things that bring me joy. And to me, that's a very important distinction because I really enjoyed my previous life. I enjoyed the fashion shows. I enjoyed the Mercedes AMG. I enjoyed the global travel, but they didn't bring me joy. Yeah. And so what does bring me joy? And it's about having an impact. Anytime in my life, I've been having an impact on something outside of me. I've been joyful. Um, and animals, I've always loved animals, but have not ever lived a life that is conducive to caring for them. And it just, you know, I, this whole idea of surrender came over me. So I was trying with all of my might to formulate what my next chapter would be because I thought I knew, like, I'm a very controlling person. I'm very much in charge of my life. I knew what was next. 
But despite all of that, I end up here crying with a woman on TikTok in a house in Mendocino County about the slaughter and abuse of donkeys. And this idea of surrender, like maybe I don't know what's right. Maybe I don't know what's next. And maybe if we just get out of the way for a moment, what's supposed to happen will happen. So all of that happened in the course of a week. I wrote a business proposal. So I have run businesses my whole life. So I'm very comfortable in, a, in the business context. I wrote a business proposal of what it would take to turn this into a donkey rescue. Um, Phil, the person I work for, came up for the weekend. We went to have breakfast. And I said, so I want to talk to you about something. Um, I want to stay at the ranch. I want to take the ranch off the market. I want to fulfill your legacy of animal welfare. And I want to rescue donkeys. Mm. And I think that Phil almost fell out of his chair. <laughs> Let's keep in mind that I was front row at Versace just a year and a half prior. Um, and it didn't really settle well with people. Um, I think they thought I was going through a midlife crisis, but you know, I'm sort of an all in person and I was really moved by both the idea of surrendering and stop trying to control what's next and the idea of being able to have an impact on animals. And I had done quite a bit of research on donkeys. <clears throat> they are amazing animals and um, they deserve, you know, donkeys have basically built all the ancient histories, uh, all the ancient cities in the world. Now they have no real value and definitely no monetary value. So now they're being disregarded. And, you know, they're sort of the underdog. They don't have a voice. They need, a, they need an advocate. And so Phil, you know, partially agreed. I think he just wanted to see how far I would take this. And I called a, the woman that I saw on TikTok. Her name is Talia. She runs an organization called All Seated in a Barn. I called her and I said, so I think I can help you with a place to take some donkeys. Um, but why don't you send me three to make sure I can do this, make sure I like donkeys and they like me. And she sent me three and uh, in 30 days, we'll celebrate our one year anniversary and we'll have 104 donkeys. Oh my goodness. Let's go <laughs> back. That is a, that's just an amazing, delightful, warm, sweet story. Ron, what was your plan going into this? Did you have to hire animal care specialists or people experienced with donkeys? How did you figure out what was needed? So I am a Google farmer. I Google 20 times a day, every day. I didn't know I, know, I knew very little about livestock care in general. I knew nothing about donkey care. I definitely understand my whole life has been a life of find experts in particular areas and do what they do. Yeah. So I identified that very quickly. Um, and then I just did a ton of research. So donkeys, people think that donkeys are similar to horses because physically they sort of resemble a horse, but their brains are made completely differently. So the part of the brain that processes emotion is the same size in a donkey as it is in a human. So these are very emotional animals that form very strong bonds with each other and with their human caretakers. And I felt madly in love. You know, I was given a tour. So I give about six or seven tours a week. We're not open to the public, but we welcome people who want to donate or volunteer or adopt. So I was given a tour to a group of people. There's a woman there who spoke up and she said, you know, I'm really impressed with what you're doing. I have found that you're either born with equine care capabilities or you're not. And I said, you know, I have to disagree with you. Um, I had no equine care capabilities, Yeah. but I believe you're either born with compassion or you're not. Right. And I'm bubbling over with compassion for these animals and the rest I will figure out. So 
Where did these donkeys come from? So every single donkey on property, except for two, came from a livestock auction in Bowie, Texas. Where the auction system fails is for the undesirable. So for the horses, this is an equine auction. For the horses that are not desirable and not getting purchased in the auction, and then for almost 100% of the donkeys, because nobody wants donkeys, for the undesirables, it's the end of the road. So the day after the auction ends, the animals that didn't get purchased get loaded on a semi, driven across the border, and slaughtered. So it is the last step for donkeys. We have to take a quick break. We're speaking with Ron King. He's co-founder and CEO of Oscar's Place. Don't go away. After the break, we're going to learn more about donkeys. You're listening to Animals Today. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. Leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re-sewn. The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. 
A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Welcome back to Animals. Today, we're speaking with co-founder of Oscar's Place, Ron King. Ron, tell us about donkeys. How are they different from a mule or a burro or a horse? What are they like? What do they eat? Are they social animals? Do they need companionship? Are donkeys misunderstood? <laughs> donkeys are amazing. So donkeys are more dog-like than horse-like. So they're very emotional. They're very intelligent. Uh, they, they, they're herd animals. They have a community. So when I go out in the morning, um, I have five or six that I'm very close to. And when I call them, they know their names. When I call their individual names, they bray and they come running across the pasture to me. Um, and then they follow me around all day long while I do my chores. Mm. Um, they, they also form very strong bonds with each other. These are lifelong bonds and they're not romantic. So I have a pair out there, Sandy and Rizzo, a pair of bonded females. When one sleeps, the other stands guard. Then when she wakes up, the other goes down and sleeps. They walk in unison. They eat together. They sleep together. So they, they're very uh, emotionally connected beings. Um, the, uh, the other interesting thing about donkeys, so we have had many sick. We've had many arrive that had to go to the hospital because they were dying of starvation. Mm. We've had probably 12 cases of severe pneumonia. So I spent a lot of time at UC Davis in the large animal hospital. When I nurse a donkey back to health, they're instantly um, friendly because they know that they've been saved and these donkeys have a way of saying thank you to me every single day. Um, and we get all kinds. We have wild donkeys, we have BLM. So a mule, a mule's dad is a donkey and mom is a horse and they're sterile. They can't reproduce. Burrows are just wild donkeys. It's just another term. Um, and you know, the wild ones, we have lots of BLM donkeys on property. They've never been handled. They don't want to be handled. So we work with example donkeys in front of them and they're watching us and they're so smart and they're so emotional. They watch what we're doing. They realize that these hands are not hurting their companion donkey. And when they're ready, they come over and they nudge your elbow and you turn around and you give them love. And then they're yours for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. um, they make a decision and it's like that. And um, it's one of commitment and trust and love. And it's incredible. Ron, do donkeys enjoy working? Definitely they're working animals. You know, they have, as I mentioned in the previous segment, they have built most of the ancient cities on the globe. Um, and they also carry fat tourists up and down in the Grand Canyon. Our don my, I've made several promises to, to the donkeys at Oscar's Place, and one is that they're retired. So they're not going to be ridden, no more petting zoo. They're not going to be Instagram moments, and they're not going to work. I do think that in certain situations, they probably enjoy having a job like a lot of animals. 
and they have been used for sedentary work animals, but our donkeys are retired. Do donkeys and horses get along? They do. I have adopted out several donkeys as horse companions. Um, donkeys should always be with other donkeys. So they can be a horse companion with another donkey. They also are great livestock guardians with another donkey. Uh, it is very important that the donkey have a donkey companion, but then they can live with, they can guard and protect sheep, cattle. They can be companions to horses. Um, I've seen all of that very successfully as long as there's two donkeys. Ron, tell us about your volunteers. So I have a, I'm relatively remote, so it's a little bit challenging for volunteers to get here, but we have a volunteer program. Our staff handles the poop scooping, the medications, and the feeding. Our volunteer program is hands-on donkey. So they want to be, and hopefully, Dr. Laura, you can come visit, and you will see the actual hugs that donkeys give you. Oh. They want to be hugged and held. I have two donkeys that think they're lap donkeys. Um, <laughs> So they definitely want that. But the only way to emotionally heal from what they've been through is hands on donkeys. So our volunteer program is combing, brushing, carroting our donkeys. I will speak for a moment about um, what it's like running a nonprofit, animal nonprofit or animal rescue. I have run massive businesses and I kind of came into this naively thinking that it would be a walk in the park. And it's the hardest job I've ever had. Um, not only from an administrative point of view and the pressure of fundraising, but then you add the emotional part to it. Um, my hat goes off to all people running animal rescues or animal nonprofits because it is really, really hard. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. And I just went to a rescue and I learned an interesting lesson about myself at this rescue. And that is, you know, I believe that it's pretty unhealthy to compartmentalize your feelings in life, but in a rescue situation, you have to, because I saved 50 animals and I couldn't get to more than a hundred that were loaded onto a tractor trailer the next day and driven to slaughter. That's hard. And I saw them go through and, and that will cripple you emotionally. Yeah. If you don't figure out how to sort of park it somewhere and focus on the 50 that you did, if you focus on the good that you did. Yeah. You can't save them all. No, you can't save them all. What do you guys need? How can listeners help? And what's your website? Um, our website is oscarsplace.org and links to all of our social media and everything is on our website. And, you know, support of the donkeys comes in a couple different ways. Obviously the number one way is donations. So the philanthropist who helped me launch this property has given me a two year runway to be fully self-supportive. So that in itself is the biggest gift I could ever have asked for. So he makes up the difference between what we raise and what we spend every month. That ends in December, 2022. So I need, we need donations to keep this place going. I have written a succession plan. We have put all of this into a trust. Oscar's place will be around and saving donkeys decades after I'm gone. But to do that requires donations. We have an Amazon wish list. We love volunteers and actually sharing and engaging on social media is a huge help for us because I'm also in discussions with corporations about corporate sponsorships. And if they see an active and engaged social media audience, it makes us look better to them. So there's a lot of different ways that you can help us. And 
Um, it's all appreciated. We are accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. We're the youngest sanctuary ever to have been accredited. And we're God Star verified and all your money and all your support goes directly to the donkey. Ron King, thank you for what you're doing. And thank you so much for educating us about donkeys. Of course, thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.